Good to see you all this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy, Lord, which is new every day, the mercies that we will receive from you today, the life that we have, Lord, to live for you. I pray, Father, that everything we do, everything we say, whether we eat, drink, whatever else we do, we do all for the glory of God. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the Holy Spirit takes that word and convicts us, Lord, when we need to be convicted to make changes that we need to, to make in our life. You're concerned, Lord, for our sanctification, our walk, moment by moment, day by day. I pray, Father, for the gospel to go forward, to touch lives and change lives today. And many will come in to the kingdom of God through the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I pray for our missionaries that you would encourage and strengthen them. pray especially for Fernando. Lord, as he undergoes this biopsy, and that you just prepare his heart for no matter what the results would be, that he would just keep walking with you and trusting you. And I pray the same for each and every one of us here today. For those who are weak in the flesh, that you might help them, whether it's spiritually or physically. And Lord, that... You would just lift up their spirit, those that, are, the, those that are cast down by the trials and the tribulations of life. I pray for those who are not here with us this morning for whatever reason, that, Lord, they, they might find your word sufficient for their every need. Bless and encourage them, Lord, through this message if they're listening. And I pray for the listeners here that they might be blessed as well. And Lord, that their hearts would just be further directed to the things that are eternal. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You could open your Bibles first to to Philippians chapter 1 and then also in Romans chapter 14 where we have been studying for the last three years. But we did get delayed back in 2020 for some I think I could turn my Romans notes into a book very easily. There could be no doubt that in his life and in his death, the Apostle Paul lived for Jesus. For many Christians, Jesus is just a small part of their life. Sometimes a very inconsequential part of their life. They can fit him into their schedule on Sunday morning most of the time. For Paul, Jesus was his life. His passion was serving his Savior who came to this earth and died on the cross. So this very religious but lost Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus could become the apostle of the Gentiles and speak to them of the kingdom of God and the unsearchable riches of Christ for all of those who enter that kingdom. From a Philippian prison, Paul said that he was in chains for the furtherance of the gospel. Philippians 1.12, if you're looking there. And then beginning in verse 19, Philippians 1, he said, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers, And the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, 
according to my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything. But with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So here we see that Paul, Paul had every hope that he would confidently stand for Jesus Christ no matter what, what it would cost him. And that led to the climactic statement that we find in verse 21 here. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Pleasing and serving Christ was what drove Paul. It was his passion. So I need to ask you this morning, what is your passion? That's a reflection question. What are you really passionate about in life? What are you living for? Is it for your family? Is it some, for some other worldly achievement or pleasure? Wholesome goals are good to have and work for. But not if those goals cost you a close relationship with Jesus or hinder you from serving him. Things of this life, no matter what they are, should never preoccupy us to the point of forgetting about the life to come. Live for Christ's glory. That's what Paul would say to us this morning. I believe that with all my heart. And guess what? The life to come is coming faster than you think. You have an appointment with death unless the rapture comes in your lifetime. Now, I know that may not be very uplifting. It may be the farthest thing from your mind, especially if you are young here this morning, but it is a reality. It doesn't matter how much exercise you do, how many supplements you take, how much good food you eat and bad food you avoid. We are all going to die. How we live while we stand in line waiting for that moment, that's what matters the most. And that's what Paul was getting at in verse 8 of Romans 14. So you could turn there. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. And if you didn't get it, he says it a second time. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. We are his possession. He purchased us with his own blood. Life and death constitute the whole of human existence. Now, there's a mistake in your, in your notes here. I'm correcting it now. Where it says, from our birth throughout our life until the time... The Christian enters glory, we are God's possession and should be living for him who redeemed our souls. That should say, from our new birth, the time that we become a Christian, we're born again, until the time we enter glory, we belong to Christ. That's what Paul is saying there. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord. And we should be living for the one who redeemed our souls, who purchased us. Colossians 3.1 says, If you then are risen with Christ, and if you have been born again by the Spirit of God, you have been risen with Christ, according to Romans 6. Then he says, Seek those things, and it's, it's present tense, keep seeking those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection 
on things above and not on the things of this earth. What holds your heart? What captures your heart? Jesus says that where, where a man's heart, is, where, with the things he treasures, where his treasure is, there his heart will be also. Let me say to you this morning, and you think about that verse, seek those things which are above, not, not on the things of the earth. The performance of your retirement portfolio is not nearly as important as important as your performance for Jesus. How, how your portfolio performs ultimately doesn't matter. You're going to leave it behind. But what you do for Christ has eternal benefits and rewards. Jesus is our sovereign master. We call him Lord. It says in verse 9, Romans 14, for to this end Christ both died and rose and revived. That means he lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Begins with this little word for, which in the Greek is gar, G A R in English. That's a term of explanation. To this end is added by the translators. Other versions have for this purpose. The New, New English translation has for this reason. So it's a purpose statement. Christ died and returned to life, revived, so that he may be the Lord, both of the dead and the living. He is our sovereign master. Jesus was subject to death on the cross for our sins. And in doing that, he conquered the realm of death. And death is man's great enemy, is he not? You could read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 if you, if you don't believe that, especially the end of the chapter. But Ezekiel 18.4 said this, Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. Belongs to the Lord. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Now that means every one of us. Because we all have what? Sinned and come short of the glory of God. We can't escape death. We are going to die, each and every one of us. Christ's resurrection guarantees the believer's resurrection to glory. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, In this life only, we, if we had hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now, and that's an emphatic statement in an emphatic position, but now, he says, is Christ risen from the dead, and he has become the first fruits the first fruits of them that slept. He's the only one who rose from the dead by his own power. And there will be many fruits to follow after that. All believers will be raised. All unbelievers will be raised. So Paul's, Paul is emphasizing Christ's resurrection here. And then he says, since Jesus died for everyone, the weak and the strong, because that's what this chapter is about, the weak and the strong, the weak thought that they couldn't eat certain foods. The strong thought that they could eat everything. But since Jesus is the one who died and rose for them both, he is their mutual Lord. You can look at verse 4. If you don't believe that, you can't judge another person's servant. right? Christ is our master. Or judge their servant because Christ is our master. Since, since he is the mutual Lord of the weak and the strong, they should both respect and love one another. 
That's what Paul is getting at here. Look at verse 15. If because of food your brother or sister is hurt, you are no longer walking in accordance with love. Do not destroy with your choice of food, or it could be your choice of anything else that's in that gray area. Do not destroy with your choice of food that person for whom Christ died. He died for weak Christians. He died for strong Christians, right? The, the, the immature and the mature. Since Jesus is Lord of all and judge of all, as we're going to see, by virtue of his lordship, then we all will give an account of our lives to him, including our relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Did we love the brethren? How did we treat the brethren? So I want to tell you this morning, your life is, is fleeting. James says it's just a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. So live in light of the coming judgment of Jesus Christ. Verse 10. But as for you, he's speaking to the weak here. Why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you as well, he's speaking to the strong. Why do you regard your brother or sister with contempt? For we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The all means all, and that's all that all means. We all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And Christ's death and resurrection granted him the right to be the judge over all. John 5.22, it says, For the Father judgeth no man, but he hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Acts 17.28, For he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. The Bible says in Romans 1.4 that Jesus was declared or proven to be the Son of God by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. And that resurrection entitled him to be the judge over all. All men. The Bible speaks of a number of different judgments. I'll talk about two, but we can mention three. The great white throne judgment, the judgment of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25 when Jesus comes again, and then the Bema seat judgment of Jesus Christ. All unbelievers, if you are here today and you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior and you were to die in that state, one day you will stand before the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ. Revelation 20 and verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Earth and sky fled away. I mean, this tells us that this great white throne judgment will not be on the earth, nor will it be in heaven. So where is it? Somewhere in outer space. We don't know. It hasn't been revealed. And I hope you never come to know where it is. And John says, And I saw the dead, great and small, didn't matter what they achieved in life, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Every individual sin of the unbeliever will be judged at that time. Every thought, every word, every action. But their fundamental sin was their rejection of Jesus Christ as Savior. That's why Lewis Berry Schaefer liked to say, because of Calvary, people no longer have a sin problem. Instead, they have a son problem. I would say they don't chiefly have a sin problem. They have a son problem. They'll die in their sins without Christ. In verse 15 says of Revelation 20, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. If you go back to verse 14, you find that death and hell, some translations have the Greek word is Hades, were cast into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is Gehenna. So think of it this way. If a person dies without Christ right now, where do they go? The body goes into the ground waiting a resurrection. Their spirit goes into hell. It goes into Hades. Hades is a temporary place of punishment. Luke chapter 16. They'll never escape. Their judgment is sealed at that point. But they're being held in Hades. Think of it like the local jail. A person commits a crime, they're arrested. Where do they take them? They take them to the local jail. And that's where they will be until the great white throne judgment occurs. Then death and Hades, hell, that temporary holding place for the unsaved, will be cast into Gehenna, the lake of fire. And that's their final, final place. That's where they will be forever. It's a horrible thought, is it not? Whoever was not found written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. Philippians 1-2 says, I implore Udi and I implore Sintichi to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, this is interesting. You've got, you got two sisters not getting along. What does Paul say? I urge you, also true companion, help those women who labored with me in the gospel. They were believers. With Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. I wonder if these two warring sisters thought about the fact that they have to stand before the beam of seat of Christ. Their names are in the book of life, but they will have to stand before the beam of seat of Christ. Well, what is this book of life? It's mentioned numerous times in the book of Revelation. The book of life is the final record of those who will be granted eternal salvation. Everyone's name is written in the book of life. It's the book of the living. Everyone who ever lived. It's been written there from eternity past, indicating to me that God's desire is for all to be saved until they have irrevocably reject Christ when they say their final no to Jesus Christ and then their name is blotted out from the book of the living, the book of life. Now let me show you that. Revelation chapter 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and shall be ascended out of the bottomless pit. I'm not going to get into all the prophetic details here. And go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder. These are all dealing with the tribulation realities. Notice what it says. Whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, 
when they beheld the beast that was and is not and yet is. Let me say this. This is not a proof text for pretemporal election, meaning that God chose some to be saved. Their names were written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, and others were not. It's used that way. It's not saying that. We're not written here is a perfect passive verb. Indicative mood. Aren't you excited about that? It denotes continuous action. They have been blotted out. Now, here's a, this is important. It is not the completed process of writing before the foundation of the world that when it says not written. It is the continuing result. So the completed process of writing before, for, for, for the, before the foundation of, of the world is not negated by that little word, ooh, in the Greek, English not. It's the continuing result that is negated. So the idea is, according to the passive tense here, the idea is that their names were once written in the book of life because it's the book of all the living but they did not continue to be written there. They were written at one time, but they have been removed. They did not stay there. They have been blotted out. They are doomed. They have died with finality, rejecting Jesus Christ. That's a horrible state. Now let me be clear about this. The great white throne judgment is for the unsaved. The Bema seat judgment of Christ is for believers. And Paul said every Christian is going to stand before the Bema seat of Christ. Let's put a picture up here. This is the Bema seat in the city of Corinth, the ruins of ancient Corinth. It's a raised platform. And on that platform, this is obviously you know, a long, long time ago, but that's, that's a, the site of where the Bema was. The next picture right here actually shows you the wall. And what does it say? The Bema. So this is the Bema seat in the ancient city of Corinth. In, in Acts 18.12, it says that Paul stood before the Bema seat. In Acts 18.17, it says again that Sosthenes was brought before the Bema seat in Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 6 in Caesarea, Philippi. Before Festus, it says Paul was standing before the Bema seat. So, so it was a, a judgment seat in those days, but it was also a seat for rewards, which we'll see that. I want to make this clear. The Bema judgment, we all will stand before the Bema seat of Christ. The Bema judgment is not a judgment for the sins that you have committed. Hallelujah. Praise God. Why do I say that with confidence? Because all of the sins of the believer have been forgiven the very moment that they receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, past, present, and future. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened, that means made alive together with him. What does it say? Having forgiven you all your trespasses. Blotting out, that means wiping off. The handwriting, that was a legal note. That's the law of ordinances, the dogma, 
the laws of God that you have been broken, God has wiped them away completely. And it says they were against us. They were contrary to us. And what does it say? He took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. What does that mean? He who became sin for us, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be what? Made the righteousness of Christ in your God in him. Isaiah 43.25 I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake and will not remember thy sins. How could you be judged for them if God blots them out and he has no remembrance of them in a legal sense? Isaiah 44.22 Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant. Servant, I have formed thee. Thou art my servant, O Israel. Thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. So even with the, with the, with the Israel who'd gone far astray, God offered forgiveness to them in the complete remission of their sins. Boy, what a blessing that is, right? You think of that verse, our sins, our sins hung, hung over us like a dark cloud following us everywhere. Like the burden on the pilgrim's back in Pilgrim's Progress. And if you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, I order you to read it. It's a good, it's a good book. So they were carrying this ter- terrible burden, this dark cloud of, over our life of sin and judgment. And, and the Bible says God swept it away. He cleared the slate of our offenses. That is grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Micah 7.18 Who is God like unto thee? that pardoneth iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retains not his anger forever because he delights in mercy. The Bible says that, 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 jur- that judgment is God's strange work, his alien work. He doesn't, he doesn't care to do that, but he must. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and he will cast all their sins, and that's mine and yours, into the depths of the sea to be remembered against the snow more. Uh, what did Micah know about the depths of the sea? How much did he really know? Did you know that the average depth of the ocean, Pacific Ocean, is 12,080 feet? That's the average depth. And the deepest place in the Pacific Ocean is in the, in the Mariana Trench, at 35,876 feet deep, that's higher than Mount Everest, is tall. God cast our sins into that kind of a depth, illustratively. And it means they have been completely forgiven to be remembered against this no more. Out of sight, out of sight. I quoted 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What does that mean? Jesus did not become a sinner. It means that he was made sin in a judicial sense. He took the punishment for our sins, who knew no sin, so that we could be saved, forgiven, born again, 
and receive a righteousness that we do not have because all of our righteousness apart from Christ is as filthy rags. That's a horrible thought. All of our righteousness, all the the best that you would have to give God is nothing but rubbish. Filthy rags. And, And he cleansed us. And now he gives us an alien righteousness. That's the doctrine of justification by faith. God imputes to us on the basis of our faith in Christ a righteousness which we do not possess. And we are holy. And we are pure in God's sight. Now we're working out our sanctification so that our our. Our, stand, our position in Christ as we, as we grow, our, our walk in the Lord, will, will be, be one with our standing with Christ. We will end up completely free of sin, but we will not be judged for our sins at the bema seat of Christ. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him what? The iniquity of us all. He paid the price for it. You're not going to some kind of purgatory. You're not going to pay a price again. Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore what? No condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. So what then is this beam of seed? If we're not going to be judged by our sin, don't take it lightly. Where is the beam of seed? It's going to be in heaven. When will the beam of seed judgment occur? I think it's going to occur right after the rapture. I think it'll be one of the first things after the church is raptured. The Lord Jesus will come take his bride to be home with him and then the Bema seat judgment will occur. It's not a judgment for sins. The sins have been dealt with on the cross. It's a judgment for rewards. And depending on what we receive at that Bema seat judgment, the rewards from Christ as we're going to see, I think a lot of that will determine where you will be in terms of the position that you will hold in the kingdom of God during the millennial age. That's really going to be part of it, but just part of it. We're actually going to cast all those crowns down at his feet. So the Bema Seat is the place, as I put here, where rewards will be given or lost, depending on how one has used his or her life for the Lord. Romans 14, 11, again, it is written, I, as I live, says the Lord, and he's quoting Isaiah 49, 18 there, from Romans 14, 11, To me, every knee will bow and every tongue will give praise to God. In Philippians, Paul said every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. But this phrase is taken from Isaiah 45, 23. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. At the Bema Seat Judgment, we are going to give an account to Jesus Christ. Revelation 22, 12. Behold, I am coming quickly. That means suddenly. That means unexpectedly. And my what? My reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. Now here's the key. The Christian life, Paul, used a lot of athletic metaphors. We wrestle, we fight, box, we run. We are running a race. And the race must be run according to God's rules. The word bima was taken from the Isthmian Games in ancient Greece, where the contestants would compete for the prize under the careful scrutiny of judges 
who, would, who made sure that every rule of the contest was to be obeyed. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.5, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned. What is he? He doesn't get a crown unless he competes according to the rules. 1 Timothy 2.5. The victor of a given event because at the Bema Seat, it was not only a tribunal for certain judgments, it was the place of the rewards were given out for the athletes who competed in the games. The victor of a given event who participated according to the rules was led by the judge to the platform called the Bema, and there a laurel wreath was placed on his head as a symbol of victory. Look what Paul says. Listen what he says in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 25. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run. But one receives the prize. There's one first place winner. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Ha. Run, brothers. Run to win. Don't be, don't be satisfied with second, third, fourth, fifth... Because it means you're not giving your best for Jesus Christ. You're not passionate about Jesus Christ. Run to win. Run to win. Run in such a way that you may obtain it, Paul says. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things, disciplined. Now they do it. They do it. Why do these athletes do it? To obtain a perishable crown. What is a perishable crown? It's a stephanos. It's a wreath. But we for an imperishable crown. And there's a little picture here I think we have. And you, you've probably seen this of the, the laurel wreath being placed on, on the victors' heads, whatever the contest would happen to be. Today they, get, they don't get wreaths, they get what? They get gold medals, right? So that takes us to 1 Corinthians 3.10. Paul says, according to the grace which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each person must be careful on how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now here, here's the important part, the beam of judgment. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. This is the day when you will stand before the big seat judgment of Jesus Christ. And the fire itself, this is the fiery judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. The eyes like flames of fire, John said. The fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work which he has built on that foundation of Christ remains, he is going to receive a stephanos, a reward, a crown. If anyone's work is burned up, he is going to suffer loss, the loss of that reward, but he himself will be saved, yet only so as through fire. It's important to note there in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 14, that the work is being appraised. Not the person, not his sins, 
They have been paid for at the cross of Christ. So it's the work that's being tested by fire. And emphasis there in 1 Corinthians 3.10 is on the fact that every Christian will give an account of his life before the omniscient Lord Jesus Christ. All, all that was done for self will be regarded as worthless for reward. While everything that was done for Jesus will be rewarded. Everything. Even giving a cup of water in Jesus' name. Passing out a gospel track. Teaching a class. Coming alongside one to encourage somebody, to comfort them. Whatever the work, whatever the labor is, it's not forgotten by the Lord Jesus. You say, well, how could he do this? I mean, just think of the billions of people, possibly Christians, who are going to be at this beam of seat. And you, we know you go to heaven, and then possibly seven years after that, the tribulation will begin. Lots of things have to take place. You know, I don't know. We have this idea of everybody coming up one, in, one at a time and standing before this seat. And I don't think it's going to be like that at all. That's one of the mysteries that have been hidden from us. But in all omniscient, God knows every single thing. He can, he can carry out this judgment in just like that. For everyone. At the same time. So the beam of seat, I picture a beam of seat being raised up somewhere in heaven. And the throng of believers before him, standing before him. And almost instantaneously, as we configure time, the judgment is is accomplished. Rewards will be given and, and labors not done for Christ or with the false motive will all be burnt up. And that's it. Some of the criteria for the rewards or the crowns are identified in the New Testament. There is an incorruptible crown for those who run the race of life acceptably. 1 Corinthians 9.25 there's the crown of life for those who fight to resist temptation. James 1.12 There is a crown of rejoicing for those who win souls for Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 There is the crown of righteousness for those who are anxiously waiting the coming of Christ. 2 Timothy 4.8 And that means they're laboring while they're, they're waiting. They're serving Christ. They know he can come at any moment and bring his reward with him. And then in 1 Peter 5, 4, there's a crown of glory for the faithful under shepherds here on earth. I want to close with two thoughts. The reality of standing before God's judgment seat, beam a seat, should cause you to refrain from speaking quickly against the brother or sister in the Lord who may be doing or saying something that is not clearly commanded in Scripture. That's Paul's point here. Don't judge unjustly. Don't judge when you don't have the capacity to judge. When you can't see the motive of a person's heart. Some things must be judged. The Bible says he who spiritual discerns or judges all things. But we need to be very careful about that. Every idle word will give, it, will give an account, the Bible says, for so when you're looking down on people you think are not where you, they should be, give them time for growth. Come alongside them. Encourage them. Instruct them with the right attitude. Don't go to them with a finger in their face pointing out their sin. God doesn't deal that way with us. Now, here's the second point. 
you may be thinking, I'm, I'm not really worried about the rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. I'm just happy I'm, I'm going to heaven. I had one, one Christian who, who told me one time, I, I don't really care about all that stuff. I mean, I, I just, all, if I get in by the skin of my teeth, I'm okay. Those are the exact words. I'm okay if I just get into heaven by the skin of my teeth. Well, that's not a godly way of thinking at all. That is not honoring to your Savior, Savior who gave his all for you, his very life. Pleasing and serving Christ was what drove Paul. It was his passion. And I want to say to you this morning, if you remember anything, remember this. Be passionate for Jesus. Live your life for him. Use your talents. Use your spiritual gifts. Use your earthly resources for his glory. And it will be worth it all when you see Jesus. I knew a man who was very intelligent, very smart. And, he, and he, he amassed a lot of money. And as he was collecting this money, his goal was to retire while he still had some vigor left in him so that he can go and serve Christ somewhere and use his money for the kingdom of God and die broke. That's exactly what he said. I don't know about his family. I'm sure he took care of them. But as far as any, he didn't care about holding on to anything. He wanted to use it for God's glory. And I'll tell you, if you, if you live passionately for Jesus, it will be worth it all when you see Christ. It will be worth it all when you see Jesus. So in closing, I say to you, strive to say, strive to say with Paul what he said to, in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Right? Henceforth, there's laid up for me what? A crown of righteousness. Father, we thank you. We just step away from the busyness of life for a very short time every week. And we come under the hearing of your word. And we're reminded, Lord, what life is really all about. It puts things into perspective for us, Lord. So help us, I pray, to, to lay up treasures in heaven, as Jesus said, and not, on treasure, not treasures on earth. The thieves can steal the treasures on earth. The moths can corrupt. The, they can rust away all the trinkets of men. But the things we lay up, the treasures we lay up in heaven are untouchable. And Lord, they'll come to us in the, in, in the form of rewards, crowns that we really don't deserve because what we do, we do by the grace of God. And that's why we'll lay them all down at Jesus' feet. Lord, I would pray that nobody would be ashamed at his coming because they have so little to lay down before his feet. So help us, God, I pray, to live for you, to love you, to love one another, and to serve one another. In Jesus' name, amen.